expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. We have arrived at 2017 and episode 144 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where we know that 2017, based on anything we're seeing, is Hollywood's finally going to go full nerd. The slate for movies that are coming out just in March alone is insane, dude. And we talked about this a lot, about how, you know, when does a summer movie box office, you know, start? When does the summer movie season start? And people are saying, you know, okay, it's May. Well, now it's getting pushed to March, you know. And it's like, it's getting, it's insane, dude. It's right, really exactly. insane. And now you have, you know, Rogue One, of course, coming out in December. So it's like, you know, is it like the holiday season? It's just, it's kind of like, you know what it is? It's like con season. Cause it everybody's is like, con season. Because everybody's <laughs> like, okay, con season starts in like, you know, June or whenever, stuff like that. And now it's like a year-round thing. So it really isn't like, when is when does it really start, you know? Right, and you're not even counting TV at this point. I mean, we've got a story in nerd news coming up. We might even be getting more of that. Not only that, but the stuff that's already been announced that's going to be coming in 2017, 2018-ish. And, you know, we've got mid-season premieres coming up and all this other stuff. By the way, I'm James Witham alongside... The Merc with one arm, Nick Battaglia, and dude, it's just, it's insane. Like, I'm just looking at the releases just from March. When you got Logan, you have Power Rangers, just, it's just insane, dude. It's, oh my God. Let's just, let's just put it this way. All of those gift cards for the movie theaters that I've gotten for Christmas, oh, those are going to be put to some good use. You know, I think good I might use. finally buckle down and get one of those stupid, you know, those stupid little rewards cards that the theaters right. have. It's like... You know, I'm going to be going there a lot anyway. I guess I uh, might as well try and get like a free popcorn after my eighth movie or something. I don't know. <laughs> right, pretty much. Enjoy just... your small soda, sir. We're going to be going to the movie theater so much. It's going to be like uh, an MA star, like Movie Goers Anonymous or something like that. Let's see if they'll just let me bring my own chair. <laughs> you know, just set up like a recliner in there something somewhere. I'm like, guys, I'm spending enough money. Just let me have the friggin' chair, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you bring your own like snacks or anything else like that. Bring your own party sub. Well, that's the thing about movies now. You've got these movie theaters where you can get like wings and shit, right? Yes. You can get wings and you can get like pizzas and burgers and tacos and it's not like... just that, but like when certain movies come out, they might have certain tie-ins and right. stuff like that. Plus, for example, like you know. AMC is a movie theater that's here in Virginia, and I go to that one because it's closest to where I live, and it's gorgeous. But every time you go see like a Rogue One or like a big movie, they'll have like, you know, if you buy like a large soda, you get this Rogue One themed cup with it and stuff like right, that. And right. and you know, it's just it's a hoarder's dream, is what it is. Oh, my <laughs> wife hates that because she knows I'm gonna get the cup. Every time. <laughs> I've got cups from like when I was twelve. When they had like the the specialty like NBA cups at McDonald's, I got right. those, and I mean I've got ri- a ridiculous amount of cups, and I can't get rid of them. It's not even a hoarder thing; I just can't. Dude, you've been to my apartment. You've seen the cups I have. I have glassware from like nineteen eighty something. It's like Garfield glasses and yep. Woody the Woodpecker, and yep. you know uh, all these classic. I've got a Shazam one up there right now. Right. I know exactly how you feel. Yep. <laughs> right, you know it's just it's insane just how. The movie slate has drastically gone from, you know, 
in a world where a man, you know, needs to find his dog to comic book movie after comic book movie after video game movie after comic book movie. It's just fucking insane. And, and then the quote unquote regular people get mad when they find out that a movie that they liked was based on a comic book for some right? reason. I don't, I still don't understand why that's a bad thing. Right. Oh, exactly. It's, it's fucking hilarious. It's really, really great. Well, oh, Luke of- Cage was such a great show, wasn't it? You know that was based on a comic book, right? Ah, oh, damn it. No, it wasn't. <laughs> right. Oh, it really was. It was based on comic back in the day. You know, it's just, yeah. Or like, like Stephen King's It. Oh, I love it. It's based on the movie, right? No, it was actually a book. Oh, really? Like Jaws. Jaws is a perfect example. Yeah. Oh, I love Jaws movies. You know, it was great, great movie. No, it was based on a book, right? Blows no. someone's mind when you tell them that Die Hard was based on a book. Yeah, people well, don't believe. People still don't believe that one. That's the thing in, mo- in movies. You have to understand that, like ninety percent or over ninety percent of stuff that's you know are made into movies are based on some sort of book or literature. Hey, either way, it's being written. What difference does it make where it came from? <laughs> exactly. Speaking of things that are written, we have two new comics this week. Stay tuned. More down nerdy is coming up next. This is colorist Tamara Bondolan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds, where for the first time in 2017, we pull out those glorious long boxes of ours and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you know, I think one of the most iconic symbols, and not just nerd culture, but just in the world, is the Superman logo. Oh, totally. So I decided, you know what, Superman is well into his run in DC's Rebirth. He's in, So I decided to do Superman number 14, which, of course, is the start of a new arc called Multiplicity, and it's written by, of course, Peter J. Tomasi and Patrick Gleason, and art is done by Ivan Rice, Joe Prado, Marcelo Melo is the colors, and letters are done by Rob Lee. Now this, if you've seen the cover for the book, and again, it's called Multiplicity, you have all different Superman. You have, you know, the first Superman, you have uh, Red Sun Superman, all these different types. And this deals with, of course, Superman that we've dealt with since Rebirth started. And he finds a different Superman. I'm not going to spoil which one because I want it to be a surprise. He comes across another Superman from another world. And this Superman from another world is badly beaten. And he's running. And you find out that there is this group of aliens that are pretty much called the Gatherers. And they are pretty much... On the on the hunt for different Kryptonians, different Supermans throughout the different worlds, and it's really interesting. It's a re- it's a nice chase story, is what it is. Oh, that's cool. That's a little bit different for a Superman book, yeah. Yeah, as you know, so you get to see these things, and they look fucking picture piranhas with like six arms, pretty much. Dude, screw that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> so you have this group of gatherers and they have this list and they're saying in their dialogue, you know, you're on the list or you're not on the list. And we don't understand really why that is and why they're hunting these supermen down. Now, I will say this with the writing. There is another superman from another earth. So there's three in total that we see in this first issue. But the one that's really being hunted in this one, outside of the first one that we see in the book, is somebody that we don't care for. I'm not going to spoil who it is, but you probably know who I'm talking about. To where when he's being hunted, you're kind of like, yeah, I don't care for him, so I don't care if he gets caught or not. (laughs) Which is terrible, but at the same time, you just have those characters. But overall, I mean, the art is really beautiful. The colors are great. It's Really, really detailed. 
and the writing in this, again, if you want a really good, you know, team up and real chase story, this, I think, this whole multiplicity arc is going to be something that's very fascinating because, again, there's different Superman from, like, different Earths. And then in the book, in this issue, you also see a certain Justice League, I'll say, and when you see them, that brings in a whole new interesting dynamic as well, especially when you see who is part of this league. And it's really fascinating. It, I like about the, what I like about this, this book, this, this issue in particular, is they're introducing characters from DC's universe that really don't have a lot of spot, spotlight on them. Interesting. You know? Like, you have, like, a Flash-type character, but he's from, like, Earth. I don't know the exact number. He's like from like Earth 22 or something like that, you know? Like you have these different people from different Earths and it's not just like Earth 1, Earth 2, Red Sun, stuff like that. It's like in the 20s and 30s and stuff like that, you know? It's it's very fascinating to see these characters who never really got have gotten a certain spotlight on them and they're getting the spotlight. It's very fascinating. It's really intriguing as well. So this is a definite pull for me. I love – the way that Tomasi and crew have been doing the Superman arc, and it's just refreshing. And it's really refreshing. This is really also one of the first comics where we don't see, you know, his son or Lois Lane in here. This is just all Superman all the time throughout these pages. Uh, it's a definite pull for me. I love that because one of the things that I was so happy about over the last year in 2016 was how Tomasi brought Superman back. Right. You know, we and were also, waiting for that good Superman book, like the main run Superman book, not a limited series, and, and we finally got it, and Tomasi just found not, something that worked. I love it. And not just that, but what I love about this book as well, man, is in this issue, there are times where you're like, oh shit, Superman's getting his ass handed to him by his gatherers, you know, and, and you know, you feel like there's a real threat with these things, you know, because they attack in a group, and you're like, oh my god, you, know, you don't think he's going to die, but you're just like, Wow, you know, you see him getting ganged up on and him getting cut and scraped and just beating the shit out of himself pretty much. And it's just, wow, man. Like, these things aren't just some random aliens of the week. These things are serious, serious people. Basically, anytime in comics you add er-ers to anything, you're screwed. Right. Have you notice that? Anytime it's er-ers in anything, it's like one of the worst things you could possibly right. encounter. Dominators, gatherers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot. The list goes on and on. But yeah, yeah that, that definitely sounds like bad news. So what'd you do this week, buddy? I decided to go DC as well because there was a book that kind of stood out uh, when I was checking out what was coming out this week. And a, a character that I have, we haven't really talked about a lot on the show, so I figured why not do Justice League of America's Rebirth, The Atom, which is kind of tied into the Justice League of America that's going on right now with Steve Orlando, so it just makes sense that Steve Orlando would be the writer for this. Andy McDonald does the art, John Rausch is the colorist, and Clayton Cowles does the lettering. Now... One thing I like about this is, yes, Ray Palmer's in this issue. He has a different job. Let's put it that way. Well, not necessarily different, but it's it's something that's, you, you know, not super heroic, at least not right away anyway. The, the issue actually centers around a young man named Ryan Choi. Now, we've all had those moments as nerds where, you know, you're unsure of yourself in life. You know, for whatever reason, you just, you've been unsure of yourself and you needed that push to know, you know, you can do great things too. So basically this kid, I call him a kid, he's, he's gotten into a college in England called Ivy. So he's unsure of himself, he's got phobias, he's got allergies, I mean, it's, it's the stereotypes that you would throw in a nerd sometimes, 
This kid's got them all, but legitimately so. But he takes a class and meets Ray Palmer. And Palmer kind of takes him under his wing. And that's where the issue is really, really interesting. It's it's that mentor-protege type relationship that they have. And not only that, but that, that Ray Palmer sees something in him. And he just guides him along and just brings him out of his shell. There's a conversation they have in this issue that I don't want to spoil. It's it's very early on when they meet. And it's just so amazing. It's It's one of those things where it's like... You wish that you would have had that person at a certain point in your life when you needed them the most if you didn't. You know what I mean? Oh, exactly. And you know, I read this comic too. And what I do love is that throughout certain panels, you see the relationship kind of advance over a number of months. And you see kind of that grow. One thing I love that DC's doing, especially with Rebirth, and you're seeing what people like Jessica Cruz now in the Atom, you're getting people who aren't your typical like strong-jawed, you know, people, you know what I'm saying? You're not getting your perfect idea of a hero. You're getting these, you know, misfit toys, if you will, you know, people with different phobias and, and they just mentioned allergies and just, you know, certain mental illnesses and stuff like that that they have to overcome. And that really adds to their characters. Not only that, it's not forced. It makes sense. That's the thing oh, yes. that I love about it too. It's not like you're throwing in a certain ethnic group or a type of person or, or type of phobia or stereotypical nerd type thing. You're making it all make sense. Now, he changed his name to Ryan in this issue. Obviously, he's from China. So he decided to, I guess, modernize and, or, or, or English eyes, I guess, because it's not American. Americanized. You know, it's, you, you, you wanted to have an American-type name, so he just chose Ryan. So that was that's, that's part of it. And just the way that their relationship progresses and, like you said, changes in the book is very fascinating. And towards the end... When you see the big reveal of what happens, it's kind of a callback to something that we've already seen earlier on in Rebirth, and it makes perfect sense. So what's funny is is that DC continues in these books to bring everything back to Rebirth and say, oh, I remember that, so that's how this is going to go and tie into this and yada, yada, yada kind of thing. So what they've done here is not just bring in the Justice League of America book that Steve Orlando is going to be doing, but they're also tying it right back in to the main Rebirth run, and it looks like this is going to play a major role going forward, which, I mean, you kind of thought might happen, but didn't expect to this degree anyway. What do you think of the art? I think the art's really good. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's what we've come to expect from Rebirth, because there's been a lot of different art styles in here, but I think it's got a good quality to it, and I think it's the kind of art that we're seeing more and more of in modern comics, where it's not like ultra clean, but you don't want it to be ultra clean, especially in the scenes where you do have the Adam himself, and you know it's it's that miniaturized type world, and you're dealing with all these different creatures. You don't want this clean looking art. You want something that's a little bit rough around the edges, and I think that that's what we get here. That's one of the things that I love about the flash art that they, that the, the art in the flash, because sometimes it's jagged and it's frantic a little bit, but it's the flash. You right. want it to be that way. That's exactly how you want it to look. I actually think the last page in this book is probably the cleanest one of the entire thing. And when you, when you get to the end, you see the reveal, you'll, you'll get it and you'll understand what I'm saying. But I think that that's the cleanest one, but it's clean when it needs to be clean and it's rough when it needs to be rough. I think is the best way that I can describe it. So given all that stuff, man, I mean, this is a definite pull for me. 
And that's going to do it for what we're reading. But coming up next, it's This Week in Geektainment. Stay tuned. More Down and Nerdy is coming up next. This is Audrey Spotify from Blind Spot on NBC, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. So sometimes This Week in Geektainment kind of picks itself because after watching the mid-season premiere of Blind Spot on NBC this week, Nick, I mean, how could you not talk about everything that happened in that episode? Yeah, especially with what happens in it. And I just got to say this. Patterson is a fucking badass. Right? The, right? The entire time she's – this is going to be spoiler-filled, by the way. The entire time she's getting tortured by Shepard. I'm, I'm sitting on my couch. I'm yelling, you're a champion, Patterson. Yep. Be a champion. Yep. Be a champion. You're a champion. Like, it's just – damn, she's a – Badass woman. I mean, it goes from her being shot, and, and of course, your initial reaction is no. Yeah. No. And then it goes to what did they know about phase two? Everything. And then you you were just waiting for her to say, bitch. Right. <laughs> she what? just, I mean, the way she didn't just hang on, dude. She just went up with her, like, middle finger in the air, like, come at me, because well, I had, got this. We have to think about this, man. Throughout Blindspot's time in NBC, she's lost her, her boyfriend, or I believe fiancé, who to him being murdered. She found the guy who was after him. It was a, you know, works for a terrorist group. And, you know, she, she hasn't had the best year, you know? I know. I'm sitting there watching it, and my wife looks at me, and she's like, are you going to be okay? And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, she literally at this point has zero fucks to give. You well, know? And, and you know what? It's funny, though, that uh, that's one of the things I love about what Martin and the writers do with the show is you could take something a certain direction, right? Like that could easily, for the strongest of us, that could easily destroy you, right, mentally. Right. And that you could go totally the other direction. What they did was the exact opposite of that. She's like, even she's laying in the hospital bed. And she's like, let me flush this out. I'm like, dude, when she, it seems like every time something happens to her, she gets stronger and stronger and stronger. At the same time, Martin, if you're listening, enough. Patterson's been through enough. Give her a break for five seconds. We know that she's a strong character and she can take it. But she deserves, if there is a, if there is a, um, vacation in Hawaii moment for anybody in the show, it's Patterson that needs it. Martin, let the Patterson win. <laughs> right, exactly. And you thought, that's a sucky thing, though. You thought she was gonna. That right. Dude, and then he turns out to be Sandstorm, and you're like, come on! Right. But, I mean, you know, this whole episode deals with Roman, of course, who is Jane's brother, and is dealing with him. You know, Jane erased his memory in the season mid-season finale, and it's kind of like he's where Jane once was. And... The way that this episode was written, there were points where it had certain beats and certain tropes of normal things. For example, like an ambush scene. But, you know, but this guy's mind was, like, pretty much erased. His memory is restarted, pretty much. Mm -hmm. That scene in the diner, he's giving those guys a look. I'm like, is he having some PTSD stuff just because of the way the guys are dressed? That's what I thought, yeah. And where the the diner is located. I'm like... Is he going to unleash all these innocent people? It turns out they're not so innocent. But, I mean, that's what's so great about it is that they give you a nice little twist of like, wait, is he this way? Is he thinking this? Oh, no, he's not. It's totally opposite. Like, they do nice little kind of jukes and little fake outs here and there, you know? And it's funny because in so much of that episode alone, you don't really know where his head is at. I mean, even though, you know, the whole memory racing thing, you don't know, okay, 
which side is Roman going to fall on? Here? Right. Especially when, you know, he first, you know, he wakes up in the car and he fights, he fights with Jane, which I can't really blame him there. You see a gun, you got shot, your memory's erased. Right. This person's telling you that you're their sister. Even in a hazy memory thing, you got to be thinking, this doesn't feel quite right. So I can't really blame him for that. But throughout the entire episode, when he's getting pushed in that interrogation, and that douche nozzle showing him all those pictures of people yeah. that died. It is a fine line with Roman, though, isn't it? Because he was part of the organization. He's clearly done some bad stuff, yet you're put in this situation with him where, where you, you still want to root for him, you still feel bad for him. It's a, don't you feel like it's a fine line? I felt that during that scene where he's being interrogated, I felt like... The guy who's with him, who was like one of the tops of the government, you know, in the bureau and stuff like that. I feel like that point he was just doing that thing with the photos to make Roman say, "Okay, I did." Because he was looking for a fall guy. Oh, totally. He was. He was because you know that's how it is. I think in, in government, you know, I've had people. I know people who work for the FBI and stuff like that. I've had family members who work for the bureau. Not saying they told me this stuff, but and just just what you think, just in life, things that we've read. The, when you work in the government, you're always looking for that that bump up, that recognition, you know, that I got this thing. You, know, you want to be the guy that took down this terrorist oh, cell totally. or, or this major cell, you know. You want to be so, that Elliot Nasp type oh, person. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you want to walk into that room swinging your dick saying I'm going to be Elliot Ness in this situation. And that's what, you know, it makes him such a halo character. Because part of it's like, okay, I understand he's trying to do his job. But a back part of you is like, well, how much of this is he really digging for glory, yeah. for recognition? You know, because if you think about it, ever since he's been shown into the, put into the places of the show, he's been a real thorn in the side of the team. So it's kind of like, part of it's kind of like, okay, I can see why he's such a thorn in the side of the team. The team's kind of like, you know, the bad guys, they're, you know, backing Jane and Nas and her being fired pretty much from the FBI and, and, and you know, her deal with the FBI being ended because of what happens with the mid-season finale. This whole thing was about repercussions, and you have, when you know, you have this bad thing happen, all different types of parasites and, and things start to enter this infection. And you want to talk about repercussions, man. <sighs> Reed took the leap of faith. Oh, that's, I was trying that, not to tell you about that when you it, asked that, me about it. <laughs> okay, so Reed's the pot I've had this kind of like will they, won't they thing. You know, they're really friends, but it's like, I don't know, there's something there. So Reed, of course, he, he you know, he's out of surgery, he's out of the hospital, the pot is taking care of him, and he makes his move and kisses her and stuff like that. And the look that, not she had, but the look that he had afterwards Pretty much or, any any guy, any, yeah. Any guy, like that's a guy face when you make the move. Yeah, when you when any guy makes a move like that, anybody, especially when they're close friends, and the close friend doesn't reciprocate that, that's like, what did I do? That's, that's just the look of your world crumbling, you know. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I want to say that if, given anyone who's listening's experience with women, let's just say that when you kiss a woman. And the first thing that happens after that is her saying, what are you doing? That's a bad sign. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> oh, no. That, that's kind of like when you – that's kind of like Deshaun Jackson running for a touchdown and like spiking the ball at the five-yard line before yeah. he gets in the end zone, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. But at least – I mean, it could have been worse. He didn't get the pullback. No. It could have been worse. But he did – he was just – 
under a pile of rubble. So maybe she was giving him the benefit <laughs> of the rubble. Then you go something. right back under. Just you when know? you get out of the rubble, she pulls you back in. Right. And he's like, you know what? Just just put me back. Just just put me back. I, I, I can't recover from that. He's recovered from so much on this show already. But yeah, I don't know if he can recover from that. But, I mean, again, this was a great episode all around. And just the ending, too, when they're like, wait a minute, why did they remove that tattoo they had that tiger right. on their neck? You know, could that be part of phase two? We don't know, but that's all the great part about Blind Spot. It's always something that they're hiding. There's always another puzzle to solve. Even though there's still plenty of tattoos they haven't gotten to and plenty of puzzles they could solve, there's always another thing that's added to the mix. And then it's not just thrown in, it makes perfect sense. Every time it's added. And before we move on, I've got to say, man, we were talking about director Pellington. Dylan Baker, it, that role that he's playing is so perfect right now. Oh, I mean, Dylan, he's not getting enough credit for this, I don't think. Baker plays, if you need an asshole, Baker can play the asshole. Right, exactly. And I'm sure that he loves hearing that from people. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, and it's, it's not like he's typecast or anything, but yeah, he plays that asshole prickish authoritative figure very well and and it's adding you've already got quote-unquote bad guys on the show it just adds the good guy bad guy element to it that just is another reason i love this show right man i mean it's just what a way to kick off the second part of season two with just an episode like that again everybody in this episode kind of suffered you know we saw weller put his career on the line literally you know for his for his team and it's just just some of the moves that they've made in this show really really proves that you cannot guess what's going to happen week in, week out. Mm-mm, not at all. But that's going to do it for our review of the mid-season premiere of Blind Spot Season 2. But coming up next, we have a bunch of nerd news to get to, including Jeff Johns making his return to writing. This is Arvind Ethan David, executive producer of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We go around the internet and see what's trending for the first time in 2017 because it's time for what, James? Nerd News! First story, James, deals, of course, I teased at the end of Geek Tamer with Jeff Johns. And let's start off in the comic book realm. We know DC Rebirth is a huge smash hit. We know the reason why how it started was with Dr. Manhattan. And Johns hasn't written since the whole Rebirth issue came out back in may so he teased that he's gonna be writing a new watchman series now here's a question is it gonna be all the watchmen because remember if you read the bat read batman there's a little easter egg where they find the watchman pin and i think batman throws it off the ledge in the bat cave mm-hmm. and then you have the whole thing with dr manhattan is it gonna be a solo dr manhattan story or do you think it's gonna be tied in with like ozymandias and stuff like that it's funny because it's like the ball dropped and then Jeff Johns started dropping things too because he was all over Twitter. It was like New Year's Day at like two o'clock in the morning on the right. East Coast, going. So here's stuff that's going to happen, and the tease for for the Watchmen from Jeff Johns' Twitter was a picture of, of course, Doctor Manhattan's forehead. Now, of course, you know that in any if you've read the Rebirth issue, which he hasn't even written anything since that, by the way, we should we should definitely mention that. So right. this is him returning to writing comics again. Um, you know, if you know about the Watchmen, that Dr. Manhattan is going to have to play a vital role in whatever they decide to reveal has happened, uh, in Rebirth over the, other than, you know, cutting out of the timeline, but you know, how did it happen? Why did it happen? All these things, Dr. Manhattan's going to have to play 
a vital role. But I think you kind of have to make this a Watchmen book because the others are going to play an important role as well. And obviously, Dr. Manhattan didn't unilaterally make the decision no. to do this because that's that's not his role in the Watchmen anyway, so you know there has to be something else stirring the Kool-Aid here, so I think it's going to be a Watchmen book, and I'll be very interested to see if they do it a Rebirth-esque way, where the first issue is going to be this giant issue, almost like, make the Watchmen book the exact companion for the initial Rebirth issue that kicked everything off, make it a super-sized, massive issue, and give us the here's what was going on on the other side kind of things. I think that'd be neat. Like, the here's the things that led up to Rebirth and why it happened. And the thing, and that's, and that's why I think would be a great move, too. Th- at this point, you know, Rebirth, it's, we're in January. Rebirth has been around for about a half a year now. It's time. A lot of these runs, you know, I reviewed Superman 14. You know, a lot of these runs that Rebirth are in their 11th, 14th, 15th issue. So it's time that you introduce and see why rebirth happened the way it happened and i think this is smart plus with dr manhattan you know this is this all-powerful being and stuff like that it's gonna be very interesting to see how he plays within you know hey when the justice league finds out when batman finds out superman all these people find out that this happened he's the cause of it how are they going to react you know we, we mentioned we mentioned you know arrow and flashpoint and how Diggle was like pissed. Like I had, a, I had a daughter. Can you imagine like something's changed in these universes? And for example, and uh, they find out like Manhattan's the reason with this. And somebody has that like Diggle moment with Manhattan. Like, mm-hmm. wait, I had this or I did this. It's really, if you think about it, flashpoint for the entire DC universe. And it's funny because there's one simple question that revolves around this gigantic, gigantic, multi-encompassing story. And it's a simple one. Why? Right. Why did they do this? Why did the Watchmen and Dr. Manhattan, why did they decide to do this? And here's another question. Did they do it on purpose? Here, here, we don't know that, you know? Right. Here's the thing. With Dr. Manhattan, when he's sick, do you think his forehead gets like the red ring of death like on an Xbox 360? <laughs> he was, so he's saying he's like a mood ring? So right. like, when he gets ill, it's like a draining hourglass. Of, <laughs> well, the dot's only half full, so uh, I think the doc's going to have to be laid up for a couple of days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not all Jeff Johns teased, James. He also teased, we're going to be getting another DC-based television show. So what do you think it could be? You actually mentioned a character which might work on television that I mean, not a lot of people might think. I mean, it's, it's one of those things like, to do, what do I want it to be? Or to what do you, what do I think it's going to be? So let, I mean, let, let's, let's do both. Let, let's, let's start off with what you think. Let's no. let's start off with what you want it to be. What I want it to be. It's hard because I don't know how realistic it is. And I know that it's been teased for a while. I want it to be Nightwing. I really do. Because I think, I think Nightwing. And I think that Danny Shepard's, uh, Isma Hawk, Nightwing web series proved this. Nightwing would work so great on television. He well, remember, really, really would. Remember, Teen Titans was supposed to be on, I believe, TNT, and I think it got can. I don't think I can't. I can't remember if it got canceled. It just was, they they never they just decided not to do it. Yeah, so I don't think it was ever actually officially happening. I think that they were they were writing a pilot. Yeah, and but it was think, supposed to have Nightwing in it. Yeah, it, it never yeah it never got past the pilot phase. As, as I guess the best way we could put it. But yeah, you're right. It was supposed to have Nightwing in it, and maybe they're going to strip that down and go. Okay, you know what? 
Let's just do Nightwing, and we'll worry about the other Titans later, or we'll use oh, them. Oh, dude! In if that, they in if, that if they call if they just call like Bloodhaven, you know, or just just something, just just whatever, you know. And they said it. That's the thing is, if they do a Nightwing show, I don't want to be saying Gotham. Send it in Bloodhaven. I think they'll be, do that. That'd be you can, you great. Can even, you can even call it Grayson if you yeah. wanted to. You could call it Grayson just because there was a comic where he was the secret agent, and you call it Grayson doesn't mean you can't call the show Grayson. But what do I think it's gonna be? Honestly, I could totally see it being a Blue Beetle series. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring Cord Industries in, it would make perfect sense in the Flareoverse, whatever people want to call it now online, whatever the hot button name is now. I just think that you bring Cord Industries in, the Blue Beetle, who would be a realistic character that you could do in that in that CW world, I think that people would would definitely uh, relate to that character. He's kind of a kind of a um, a cult fan favorite, if you will. Um, even in the Rebirth books, which a lot of people have enjoyed the Blue Beetle Rebirth books, I could just see him working, and I could see him tying in. But with what makes me hold out hope for Nightwing is if you can do a character like Supergirl, if you're gonna go big name like that, you can you can go Nightwing. You really really can. What if it's like I know he's part of the DCEU, but what if they say you know we're gonna do a cyborg show? I would thought I thought about that too, and I could too I could totally see that working as well. Um, it's just a matter of if Supergirl's too expensive, right? You know, I mean, I mean, I know that we love practical effects, but how much of a practical effect cyborg do we want? How's that gonna look? Well, that, you know? well there's that, and also I, I thought of like, well, maybe about a Starfire show like that, that'd be kind of expensive too, because just of her arcs and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and, and beast boy, same thing. You, you literally can't do a beast boy show because of how much it would cost. So, and maybe that was part of the problem with Titans. It's like, all right, well, if we can't do this right, let's not do it at all. And if that's the case, bravo. What we're happy that you decided to do it that way because we don't want a half-assed version. And of course, would I love to see a Raven series? Absolutely. Oh, of course. It probably doesn't make sense though. You know, it really doesn't. Do would it love it to be like what? a Justice League Dark Here's, show? Absolutely, led by Constantine. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this Hail Mary pass. What if Jeff John says We're bringing back Constantine? That would be cool. You know I'd be okay with that. I am you not gonna cry. complain about that. I would cry. I would legit you would, cry. You would be like you would ugly cry like you won an Oscar. It would be one of those cries where it's like, uh, 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 kind of things, you know, because like, I'm just li- so happy. Like, like, like the line of Wizard of Oz. Oh, man, that would be so great. And what if it was like, uh, what if it was like Constantine and the and the Dark Universe or in Justice League Dark, and then it brings in Raven and Zatanna? Or what was it? What if it was Constantine and Zatanna? Oh, Dude, I, was- I don't Dude, if, it was, if they do it just a Zantana show, that'd be pretty interesting as well. Because she would fit, too, if you really want to get down to it, because they've introduced the, the dark arts and the mystic arts and magic into this right. already. And she is a she is such a fascinating character, too. So, I mean, Zatanna or Raven would be great. I mean, if they want to do another female lead, if that's the idea behind this, or if that's one of the ideas behind this, I'm down for that. I'm really down for almost anything, obviously. But... There, there are ideas that I'm more excited about than others, but it, at the same time, because it's all connected, and we talked about connected universes many times, and is it a good thing or a bad thing, if you want to make it all connected, though, it has to make sense in the larger universe. So that's one thing where it kind of, I think, limits them in that regard. And moving on to our second story, James, 
you know, 2016 was a big year for the Merkel with a Mouth, a.k.a. Deadpool. $360 million in the box office, Golden Globe nominations, numerous series, albeit not, I don't think all of them need to exist. Right. But, 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 but he has a shitload of them. Uh, Deadpool's getting another series with The Punisher called Deadpool vs. Punisher. However, while the cover and the title seems cool, the problem is you read what it's about, and the first line I read in this Nerdist article is, the two former Thunderbolts will team up. That's not a fucking versus comic. Yeah, you guys know what versus means, right? Right. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Now, you're right. On the surface, you see, because the first thing I saw was the headline of the article. Can't remember who right. broke the story off the top of my head. Sorry about that. There's a thousand sources. You just find one of them. Um, and you see the headline, you go, hey, you know, of all these 60 Deadpool books that Marvel's deciding to put out right now, this one actually makes sense. But then you're right. You dig deeper and deeper and deeper into what it is, and you go, well, that's not what that is at all. Right. <laughs> you know? Now, now it's going to be written by Fred Van Lente. The art is going to be done by Perry Perez, and it's going to be arriving in April of this year. So, But again, I look at this, and here's the thing, too. You know, I'm reading Justice League's versus Suicide Squad, and, and you know, I've read a lot of versus comics, especially Deadpool ones, you know, Deadpool versus Carnage, Deadpool versus X-Force. I'm noticing a trope with these versus things, and I'm not going to lie. It's, this is getting my excitement for versus books. It's really dampening it a lot because versus stories and normally two ways. Nobody dies, and also... Nine times or eight times out of ten, there's they're against each other for about a page or a couple pages or maybe even a book, and then some big bad comes in and they are forced to team up, and that's just yeah. it's too predictable. And people are saying, "Well, how can you really kill Deadpool and these characters?" It's like, well, maybe you could just not tie it to everything and say, you know, what, this is just its own universe. Punisher dies. Deadpool kills Punisher in the end. You know, whatever. I mean. Uh- Marvel made hay with what if comics so right? much. Why not just do that? I mean, you could absolutely do that. And honestly, I think that when you put the word versus in there, or the or the abbreviated word, whatever you want to call it, it it's a certain level of expectation that you never get. It, it, these books always leave you with the expect. They don't live up to the expectation of a true versus comic. Could you imagine if it was Ali versus Frazier, and then after a round, they decided to hold hands and sing together for the rest right. of the fight? I mean, right. that's just that's just not the way that it works when it's versus. You fight not necessarily to the death, but at least until it, clearly someone loses. You know, it's just what DC's doing with their whole Justice League versus Suicide Squad thing. It goes the route that's predictable, as I just mentioned, but they do a little bit of a. I'll just. I'm not going to spoil it, but they do a little bit of wordplay with the title. I'll just sit, leave it at that. To where you're like, oh, okay, so it's really this, you know? Like I, I'll just put it that way. But and that's a smart thing. But again, don't label something versus and immediately start with. They team up. It's like, that's right. not a fucking versus. It's like no. playing Mortal Kombat and it's Scorpion versus Sub-Zero. Next thing you know, Reptile enters the phase and Scorpion and Sub-Zero must fight together to defeat Reptile. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's just, I, I mean, it, it needs to stop. And I realize that Marvel's tried to create something with this whole Deadpool versus thing. But the only one that's really worked and made even a little bit of sense was Deadpool versus Carnage. Everything after well, no. that... X-Force worked because Deadpool was going through time and altering shit. 
I mean, but you know what I'm saying, though. It's like right, you, you keep doing this, but then you don't make it make sense. And, and what was sad is, is that you see the title and on the surface you think this makes sense. The, of all the of all the verses that they've done, this one could actually make sense. And then you read what it's about, and you go, ah, and I don't know if that's Van Lenti's fault or whose fault it is. I mean, I you kind of look to assign blame in this situation. I'm thinking he's assigned to this book. This wasn't necessarily his his um, own vision per se. And you've got different writers for all these different verses books too. So it's not like there's much continuity there anyway. I don't know if you want that or not, but you know what I'm saying. It's like, can't we just Pick a lane with Deadpool and follow it. I know why he sells books so well. It's not like Batman where you've got Batman and you've got Detective and like maybe one more story when they were doing uh, Batman Eternal. But it all seemed to work. With Deadpool, it's like Mercs for the money and Deadpool in the rainforest. It's like, what are you Dead- doing? Ugh, Deadpool the duck and I'm just... Ugh. And everybody is a pool now? Is that what we're going to do? All the kids in the pool? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's again. It's one of those things where I'm just like, ah. what do you? How, how long before we get cap pool? Okay, at don't, this point, you shut your whore mouth. Hey, did you say that it could happen? It, it could happen. But you know, speaking of truly what the fuck moments, our final story deals with Phoenix Comic Con. Now, there's a story that was released from Bleeding Cool, and what it dealt with was, you go to cons, there are volunteers at the cons. Well, apparently, Phoenix Comic Con. Hired too many volunteers last time, and they said, "Well, people had nothing to do. They they were just standing around, not working because there was nothing for them to do. So what do they do? They said, you know what? You want to volunteer for Phoenix Comic Con? You have to join and pay to be part of a nonprofit organization, and the cost twenty to a hundred dollars. Not only that, but even after you fucking pay the money to volunteer, goddamn tier, you might not be able to get a spot as a volunteer." Here's the deal. When you're talking about a non let me start by saying this. When you talk about a nonprofit organization, which is what they're saying the Blue Ribbon Army is, the nonprofit organization, they usually go to some sort of cause, whatever that cause may be. Now, and according to in a letter that Bleeding Cool actually published on their website from uh, Matthew Solberg, who's the convention director of Phoenix Comic Con. One of the things that stands out to me is when he's talking about the Blue Ribbon Army, and this is one of the quotes from the actual letter, it says the Blue Ribbon Army seeks to provide opportunities for those of us in the geek community to celebrate our interests and meet others. That's not a charity. No. Okay, that is a group. And I realize that these things exist, per se, in other veins, but this this is what you were doing anyway. Yeah, that's... That's, that's what cons are supposed yes, to do. That's what I'm about to say. I'm like, dude, you're not like, oh, we give comics to needy children in need. You know, it, it's it's more like, oh, we just want money because we want to be able to put these things together, get, make geeks get together. You're pretty – that's what the fucking point of making money at a con is to say, you know what? We're going to have Phoenix Comic Con 2018 and 2019 and so on and so forth. And here's the shitty thing. People give their time. We have friends of ours who volunteered at local cons. Mm -hmm. They give their time. They give their weekend. Lots of weekends. Yes. Lots of, there's, it's way more for anybody that doesn't know. It's way more than just the, the weekend of the con to tell them you have to pay to, to work. You have to pay to volunteer. You're pretty much telling them, Hey, 
you can attend the con by paying 20 bucks or so, but really it's like, instead of just being able to walk around like an attendee, you have to work. Like, that's yeah. bullshit. Yeah, and absolutely. Was, and, and this guy, Solberg, go fuck himself because that's bullshit. People give their time, they travel, they do things, they set aside their weekends and vacations for cons, and you're telling them, hey, you want to go to this con? You want to volunteer? Pay. That's fucking bullshit. Go fuck yourself. And in his statement, he talks about how we, we want to do this and this and this, and we expect the blowback. Fuck you, because what you're doing is you're doing exactly what I knew he was going to do. He was going to make it to where, oh, if we had to say, well, well, people have to pay for a charity and a nonprofit, that's going to make people who are against this look like assholes. Well, Sorry, buddy. That's not how this shit works. You know, and, that, and this just really pisses me the fuck off. This, takes a, this is like going for an interview but having to pay to be interviewed. This is bullshit. And the fact, that. the fact that, let me, let me just finish real quick. And the fact that in his entire letter, he doesn't mention, we were wrong, we're not going to have you pay. That's not mentioned one fucking time. He half-heartedly apologizes a couple times. And and I say half-heartedly, I will not quote that part, but the, it's definitely half-hearted in my view. Not putting words in his mouth at all. In my view, very half-hearted. Now, I think that uh, Mr. Solberg needs to be reminded of what the term volunteer actually means. And I'm not right. going to Google it for him. He can okay Google it himself. Now, I w I'm going to read one small paragraph from this letter again from Bleeding Cool. And, and I'm going to expound on it after that. He says, When I started Phoenix Comic Con, meaning Solberg, I simply followed the model that existed for decades prior to me. Volunteers working for a, for a for-profit company. That model is so prevalent within conventions and sporting events that it never occurred to me that there might be legal hurdles in operating such a fashion. Okay, I get that. But at the same time, in your same letter... You are saying that you are both a for-profit and a non-profit organization. Right. You cannot have it both ways, man. You need to pick a lane and decide whether or not you want to hire. And when you hire people to work, you pay them. That's how it works. That is how free enterprise and an open market system works. You hire somebody to provide to do a job for you. And that, and you pay them whatever wage you pay them. What, and guess what? Whatever minimum wage is in Arizona, somebody can look it up if they like. Whatever minimum wage is in Arizona, that's what you pay them. Now you can have volunteers, and cons should have volunteers. And if and it, l let me say this: we were talking about how much work it is, and it's a lot of work. If you volunteer for something, no matter what it is, it's a convention, a charity, what have you. You need to understand how much time that is going to take away from your life. Now, you and your volunteer, you can choose to volunteer as much as you want. I think one thing that cons should be more weary, leery of is that these are volunteers. If they can't spend the vast majority of their lives helping you with your convention, that's their choice because they're a volunteer. When you have a volunteer, you get from them whatever they're willing to give you, and you'd be happy about that. Now, I know there are some people that are dicks. They're just doing this to try and get to the convention for free. I'm not stupid. Nick's not stupid. We realize that. But at the same time, these volunteers give so much of their time and effort and get screamed at by people at cons sometimes, which is really kind of ridiculous to me. You're yelling at a volunteer that really has nothing to do with the stuff that's going on at the con. But, I mean, you have to realize that 
these volunteers are doing a service, but they do it. They're doing it because they want to. And at some point, volunteers can become employees because when you have cons, you're going to have to have employees. Nobody can put a con on by themselves. At some point, even with volunteers, you're going to have to hire people. And anybody that's ever run a convention knows that. But this guy cannot have it both ways. You can either be a for-profit convention that uses volunteers, or you could be a for that, that uses some volunteers and some hired help, or you could be a non-profit organization that doesn't make any money at all. You need to pick a lane, and those legal hurdles are only there because you've created them, and you don't know exactly what the difference is between a volunteer and an actual employee, in my opinion. Exactly, man. And this is just whole thing has just, I mean, I tweeted Phoenix Comic Con, like, what, you know, it's just one of those things, like, like, what are you guys doing? Because it's just one of those things where, again, just the idea of having to pay to volunteer, and not only that, but do you think that people who, like, writers and artists and celebrities see that, and they're like, what the fuck? Like, you know, if I'm a yeah. celebrity, if I'm a writer, if I'm a, if I'm a guest there, and I see that, I'm like, oh, I'm going to pull out from this, because that's, you know, that's not how you treat your employees, you know? And, 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 and that's the thing. And you look at just this whole thing, and again, the fact of the matter is he has not set, came out and said, hey, guess what? We're, we, we're sorry. We're rescinding the whole thing. We're just going to, you know, again, keep an eye on how many people we need to hire uh, as volunteers and stuff like that and so on and so forth. That's all you need to do. Right. That's all you need to do. I understand that that's not easy because you can't really guesstimate how many people are going to be there because things change because, you know, people buy tickets to cons the day of and stuff like that. But at least you can have a ballpark say, okay, we need this many people. We cut it off at this thing. That's all you got to do. That's all you have to do. Exactly. But to tell people, hey, we're having this paid lottery system to volunteer. That's really what it is now. It's a lottery system. You have to pay to do something or, or to get not really a prize, but just a job or whatever. It's a lottery system, and you're paying for that. That's very shady shit. That's very, very shady. And I mean, how is you? I mean, as a volunteer – if you love it enough to pay, that's one thing. Good, you know, that's that's on you. But if you're a volunteer, part of you has to be like, well, wait a minute, I paid and I'm not getting paid. Like Here's that's the deal. That's you're the thing. asking you're asking your volunteers to adapt, not yourself to adapt. I'm right. gonna paraphrase some more of this letter that was done by Bleeding Cool. First of all, he says, Well, we're not the first people to try to do this. But then here's the thing. And I want to and again I want to go further on this. He says a for profit company can only use volunteer labor under limited circumstances and the lines are not always bright. Okay, it's exactly right, but learn the difference and adapt. Hire right. some people, use volunteers for however long that you can use them, and then more, make it work from there. Because guess what? I'm assuming, and anybody can correct me if I'm wrong here because I don't have access to the books for Phoenix Comic Con, I assume they're making money, okay? So eventually, once your con grows, cons are supposed to grow and make money. That's why people have these conventions. That's why people start these conventions, not only because they want the geek community to come together and have all these great guests and stuff like that. At the end of the day, we're not stupid. You want to make money, too. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make money at all. You can have fun and make money at the same time. That's what work should be. But at the same time, you need to understand that if you're going to put your big boy pants on and have a company, you need to understand how to make it work. You need to understand once the line from volunteer to employee gets blurred, 
Like, okay, I can only have X amount of volunteers, and I can only have them work for this amount of time. If you want to have 200 volunteers and say, okay, this group you've maxed out, so now this group it's your time this time, rotate your people, man. Right. Rotate your people. Learn how to make this work because you know what? If this was really that big of a problem like he's claiming in this letter and he also claims that he wants to talk about this and have an open discussion. All right, let's have an open discussion then. Okay, if this is really a problem, then why isn't this a problem for AwesomeCon? Right. Tidewater Comic Con. Philadelphia Comic Con. North Carolina Comic Con. Awesome Mega Con. All these other cons. Why is it not a problem for them, too? Why isn't this a widespread epidemic? You know why? Because they know how to run their conventions. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Man, it felt great to get all that steam off, didn't it, for the first time in 2017? Oh, yeah. It, it felt great. I'm, I'm pumped now. We've got, we've got a guest, right? Because I'm ready now. We have a guest, and not only is our guest this week a writer, but he's also the president and COO of Top Cow Productions, Matt Hawkins joins us to talk about his new series, Dante, that's coming up next on Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Brittany Ishibashi from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of the Shadows, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Our first interview of 2017 is a big one because you know when we talk comics, it's only the best of the best. And we just read a book called Dante that's going to be out on January the 25th from Top Cow Productions. Not only do we have the writer for that book, he's also the president and COO of Top Cow Productions. It's Matt Hawkins. Matt, how the heck are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Enjoying the day. The new year is, uh, is good. I love it. Speaking of which, I mean, before we even get to talk to talk about Dante, this year, 2017, marks 25 years of Top Cow and so many great books over that time, man. So what is it like to continue that great tradition with everything you know you have coming this year already? Uh, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I started in April of 93 uh, at Extreme Studios, and I've been at one of the image companies since. So I've, I've seen most of the ride, you know. So it's been uh, it's been pretty cool, actually. As James mentioned, this year marks the 25th anniversary of Top Cow. So outside of sales numbers, Matt, what are some other milestones you're looking to achieve as both COO and as a writer? Well, I, I, I'm sort of doing – I start, I start, really started writing comics again after a 10-year hiatus uh, in 2011. So I'm, I'm about five – a little over five years into it. I'm, I have a second five-year plan I'm enacting, um, and now I've built up enough content. I have uh, – couple hundred books I've written in the last five years. There's about 16, 17 trades. And so I'm hitting the uh, convention and store circuit really, really hard this year to uh, get people to try the material and uh, to just try to build sales incrementally. You know, if, if you're not Marvel, you're not DC, and you don't have a uh, licensing, some, something with some sort of media behind it, it's difficult to get people to try something new. Uh, so I do the old school, you know, uh, kiss the babies and shake the hands approach and go out and meet all these people and get them to try it. So I, I'm really excited. I think for us, you know, I've, I've grown my personal readership about 50% in the last five years. Um, Top Cow sales are up about 20%, about 50% in digital. Prior to that, we had a, you know, there were several sort of downturns given, you know, borders collapse and several other things. We had a few interesting uh, time periods. But uh, no, the last few years have been great. You know, we've continued to try to get stuff going in film and TV. And uh, I still spend a significant amount of my time uh, uh, doing that. Um, and I do think that Postal, which is another series that I, I was mm-hmm. writing and wrote with Brian Hill, uh, has been set up at Hulu. The uh, pilot's been written, and it looks like uh, it looks like it's good. I'm hoping uh, you know this will get made. 
Hulu's not like uh, ABC or CBS that buys a hundred projects and makes ten of them. You know, they buy like six projects and make five. You know, so we've we've got a really good shot at actually getting postal on Hulu, which is exciting. So, um, you know, the last sort of media event we had was the second Darkness video game in 2012. So uh, I think we're due for something. You know. Absolutely. Can't wait to see casting information and announcement about that at some point. But of the 200 books that you were speaking of, Dante would be one of those. And one thing I love about it, and Nick, I know Nick did as well, is how it's not just another you know typical killer for hire story. So how'd you actually come up with the concept? Well, this one was actually brought to me by uh, Strange Turn, which is a company that uh, is, is owned by the center of the Carolina Panthers. And he is a comics fan and, and worked with a TV guy named uh, Jason Ning. And they had like a one paragraph and a piece of art, and they were interested in developing this. And he's a TV writer. Jason's a TV writer, worked on a show called Lucifer recently. Um, and uh, so he was trying to get this going, and they wanted to do a comic first. So they asked me if I would be interested in fleshing it out and developing it and writing it. So I, I worked with Derek Robertson over the course of a year, and we developed and wrote and, and put this together as, as a one-off. Yeah, it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, you know, one of the things that did attract me to it is how this guy has such a uh, duality of his existence. You know, he's really not a good guy, you know, and sometimes antiheroes are, are – uh, sort of looked at as uh, as good guys, they just have bad ways. But this is a guy who's not a good guy and has to become a good guy, you know, and he doesn't really know how to do it. And that, to me, was really interesting. And uh, so that, that was sort of the, the space I would put my head in when I would write the character. And, Matt, you know, before we started the, the interview, we were talking off air about just the writing, just how great the writing is. And there was a great line in this book where Dante talks about guilt. So when it comes to his family's disappearance, how much of his guilt is rooted in him not being able to be transparent with them about who and what he really is? I don't think there's actually uh, – you know, here's the crazy thing. I don't think he feels guilt about that. He has successfully compartmentalized that for his entire life that uh, he's sort of – he's doing this. He's taking out bad people and he's okay with it. His guilt is that that affected them. I think that's where sort of his guilt is coming from. And as a character, I think he'll grow and start to realize that what – and he's already started – and we hinted at this a little bit in the one shot – is that he's going to start to grow and believe that what he's doing is, is – that he's going to look back on it and realize – you know, this was these were bad things I do. I think even at the end of this first uh, story we did, I don't think him as a character, he realizes that anything he did really is all that bad. He regrets and feels guilt over the fact that it has affected his family, that he was kind of stupid in belief that they would just simply let him out. Um, and uh, he sort of had rose-colored glasses on to how to, how to, how to make some of this stuff work. So I, I think at this stage in his, his life, he just feels guilt over the fact that he got caught. You know what I mean? I mean, that's that's sort of and I think there's there's some truth to that with a lot of people. You know, um, you know, you look at all these things in, in real life is how, how often do people, you know, people don't seem like oh, they don't act guilty until they get caught. And then they're super apologetic, you know, like uh, Anthony Weiner was super apologetic about you know showing his wiener to chicks. And then flash forward five years and he's doing it again. How how apologetic really was he? You know what right. I mean? So there's there's guilt. I think it's, it's guilt over consequence. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Totally. I think. I, I sort of see that as more of where his head is at and, and based on what he's acting on. I think what we're playing with with this character is over the long term of his journey, he actually has to recognize and realize what you said is actually what he needs to figure out. The epiphany he needs to achieve, which is going to be sometime later on, is that, fuck, I was a bad guy. I need to atone for this shit, and I need to fix this, and only when I do that can I have my family back. And that's sort of the, the character arc we're taking him on. 
Absolutely. And I mean, we talked about this off the air, and of course, it's all over the internet. Matter of fact, just to, so everybody knows, we're talking to Matt Hawkins, who's a writer, also president and COO of Top Cow Productions. Of course, we're talking about Dante, which is going to be out on January the 25th. And we talked about this being a one shot. It says on the website that it's going to be a one shot as well. But there's a turning point in this story, Matt, where something happens to Dante, and it involves tattoos. And it really seems to set the story up for a long haul run. So are you hoping readers have that reaction knowing where the story could go when they read this and demand more from that? I think so. And a lot of it's going to be uh, dependent on sales, of course. I mean, sales dictates everything. Of course. And uh, since, since this isn't a book I own, uh, most of the books I do, Think Tank, Postal, Symmetry, and all those other books, I own them outright. So I sort of determine the fate of them, you know. But this one is owned by uh, other people. So I need to, uh, you know, I need to be able to justify it based on the sales and giving them their ROI, so the return on investment of what they're putting in to make this comic happen. And uh, so, you know, those th- there are mitigating factors that would not would set this apart from what I would say would be a normal book I would be working on. You know, man. Of course, this is our first interview of 2017. We're running the new year recently. So, if an assassin made a resolution, what do you think it would be? <laughs> wow. That's a really good question because I I'm not a big fan of uh, of New Year's resolutions. I don't actually make any. But, neither do uh, I actually. So. Yeah, same here. I'm not, not a big fan of them. Yeah, I, I'm more of a fan of like yesterday was a really shitty day for me, and I'm like, you know what? Yesterday was yesterday. Today's a new day. You there know, you so go. I, I kind of look at it as days, weeks, and months. But because uh, I, you know, I'm a fitness guy and I work out really hard, and I, I always am blown away by all the people that are in the gym in January that peter out by the first week of February. You know. Or in my case, they peter out the second day of January. <laughs> <laughs> so many empty treadmills. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, and these people, they go and they buy these year, uh, what, year subscriptions to these yep. gyms. Right. And I'm just like, the gyms love it. But uh, it's, it's a lot of fitness freaks like myself. We kind of don't go the first couple weeks of January, work out at the park or something. But uh, no, you know, that's actually an interesting question. I, I, I think. You know, I think a resolution of an assassin, especially somebody like Dante, it would be something more about his family life. I don't think he gives a lot of thought and has doesn't have a lot of emotion that he attaches to what he does um, for a job. So I, I think you know one of his uh, resolutions would be to spend more time with his daughter. It'd be to uh, you know to uh, read her more material, you know, read her more books, spend more time with his wife. So I mean that would be you know, and again that's sort of the center of this Dante character as he's this really good family man, you know, and uh, sort of against type because a lot of those characters you see who are also bad guys tend to be bad guys in their personal life. Uh, maybe a little shades of, of Michael Corleone a little bit, at least what he tried to do, you know, in The Godfather. Yeah. But, and sort of the same kind of drama, you know, you can't, uh, you can't really, you can't really separate these things. It's like all of us. We can't uh, compartmentalize work and home. It's just, it's just really not possible. Totally. Now, we did, we can't let you out of here, Matt, without talking a little bit about Think Tank because the fifth volume starts on March the 1st. It really sounds like the worst zoo ever that you're creating there, but beyond <laughs> that... Things won't be easy for Lauren early on either. So what can fans expect in the next arc? Well, the next arc, I, I, I started reading about a year ago about how the Russians were starting to use birds to take out drones. And they started to use dogs to uh, kind of find and do surveillance. And uh, because, uh, you know, the thing is, if you're walking down the street and you see a drone kind of hovering and following you, 
you would really fucking notice it. You know what I mean? I mean, it would freak you the fuck out, especially oh, yeah. if you're in the intelligence community. However, if some crow or a series of crows or some random dog was, uh, you know, roaming around in the air and wherever you were at, you probably wouldn't give it a second thought or a pigeon, you know? And so the Russians have really been experimenting a lot on this, and it, it's really interesting technology. And, and I don't know if you guys know much of my background, but I was uh, actually have a master's in physics, and I, I was almost in that sort of world. Some of my friends work in the military industrial complex, and uh, I talk to them on a regular basis. And I, I read a lot of these military journals and stuff, so I'm constantly amazed at the nuttiness uh, that's going on that no, no one seems to know about. You know, my favorite thing to do with think tanks specifically is I'll go have a beer with one of my old friends and I'll just ask them, hey, what scares you this year? And it's usually something I've never heard of because, you know, you ask a normal person what scares you. Oh, I'm scared of spiders, you know, or, or, or whatever. But you ask, <laughs> you ask these scientists and they're like, uh, you know, I'm really afraid of biomimetics or I'm, I'm really afraid of this vector technology they're using in, in viruses now or, or whatever it is. You know, I mean, and half the time I, I hear these things and I'm, they're new and I don't know what they are. And. So I go spend six months researching it and it gives me a new story idea. But uh, so the idea with Think Tank Volume 5, which, by the way, is, is my favorite book. I, I love that book. Um, it, it, it is a passion project that only Rasan Ekadal and I have worked on together. Like I said, the fifth volume is coming out. The first four volumes are available. The first volume actually is on the Top Cow site for free. People can download it and try it. And the fifth one, he is uh, there are animals that are attacking NATO officials in Europe um, and killing them. And uh, the, there's a geopolitical story which involves Russia, the Ukraine, Turkey, and the United States. There's always a relationship issue with David Lauren, which is him and his girlfriend and, and, and the people that he works with. And then there's a technology story, which is about him and the thought reader he created back in the very first volume and how someone else has stolen it and perverted it to control animals. And that's what sort of is going on. Those three storylines always sort of weave together. And I spend most of the time actually on his personal problems because those are the most fun. And Matt, going back to Dante, one of the many striking things about this book, outside of your writing, of course, is the art of Derek Robertson. So what about him and his work made you feel like they were the perfect fit for Dante? Well, he, uh, to be truthful, they brought him in. I, I, he was already attached to the project when I was asked if I would do it. And I was uh, like, really, you want me to work with Derek Robertson? I'm going to follow Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison and, and Alan Moore. Uh, okay. Um, right. And you know what I mean. So it was it was a little scary, but uh, I you know I got on the phone with Derek. He lives out here, and uh, we talked for quite a bit. And he's just such a sweet guy, and he's just so amazing. I mean, it, there's just uh, there's a lot of bucket list artists I'd love to work with, and he was certainly one of them. And uh, you know we've talked about doing some more material together. I think one of the things that's good about me is because I sort of came up through the image system. Um, I've always worked with a lot of really strong artists. And uh, so I, I am much more collaborative than I see a lot of writers being and, and I'm much more flexible and work with writers and try to uh, talk to them about what it is they want to draw. And uh, I'm, I'm open to their feedback because to me, it's, it's a visual medium. It's a very collaborative nature. And I always tell comic writers, I said, if you want to just solely enact your vision, the only place to do that really is a novel. You know, everything else is a collaboration. Absolutely. We can't wait to see what collaborations we're getting in 2017 from Top Cow Productions. Celebrating cool. 25 years. You want to see more, go to topcow.com. You want to get Dante specifically? I know you got to wait a little bit longer. It's going to be available, the one shot, on January the 25th at local shops. And, of course, again, at topcow.com. Writer extraordinaire and president and CEO of Top Cow Productions, Matt Hawkins. Thanks for coming on this week. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. You know, James, I think whenever you reach 25 years in anything, I think that's a pretty awesome milestone. 
Yeah, I mean, when I reached 25 years in life, I was like, okay, well, I made it. This is good. Uh, you know, because sometimes you don't know if you're going to survive your early 20s. But uh, no, man, this book just shows you the kind of stuff the Top Cow has been doing over the last 25 years. And I don't want to say quietly, but even when we're talking off the air with Matt, he's like, you know, when you're not Marvel and you're not DC, you know, you, you do what you can to create great stories and great characters. And that's exactly what they do, though. They're creating great stories and great characters. And it just goes to show you that anybody that still thinks that comics are just superheroes are, are not, they're missing the point. And that's what I think Top Cow does really, really well is they look at things and, uh, they put in certain, you know, going back to the Zach Kaplan's book, e- Eclipse, they do kind of real-world scenarios if you kind of think about it. And, some, you know, there's some things, of course, that are, like, out there. But then there are things that, that can happen. You're like, oh, wow, this is what the world could be like if this happened or whatever, you know? They give you certain they, – they put a little nice sense of touch of reality on things, you know? Absolutely. And this book, I'm not saying it makes a touch on reality, but this book, Dante, when it comes out on January the 25th, Run! to your local comic book shop to get this. Or if digital's your thing, pre-order it. Because, man, let me tell you, we were talking about this as well. I can't remember the last time that I finished a book and legitimately actually clapped at the end. Yes. I was like, yes, I was yes, there when you read it. Amazing. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. As James mentioned, go pre-order Dante, go to your local shop, go online digitally, pre-order it because it's such a wonderful and awesome. You want to talk about a series that really hits the ground running with what it does and what it's about? This is the book that Mm. does it. So be sure to get Dante right now as you're listening to this. But hey, if you want more of us, be sure to hit us up on Twitter at downnerd 757 I'm also at Merc with one arm. That's Merck with one arm, the one is spelled out. Same thing on Instagram as well. James, where can I find you? I'm at James A. Switham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. Only on Twitter, not on Instagram. I just don't take that many pictures of things that aren't kids and dogs, and you don't want to see that. But you can see a lot of what we do on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. We've got two other comic book reviews up there that Nick and I do, so it's what else that we're reading. You can go read those and find out because we never want you to buy a bad book. That's why we do this. Also, anything that you hear about on this week's show, you can find it on the This Week section on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. So if people don't want to look at pictures of dogs and, and, and babies, are you, are you have you seen not social my, media? Not, my, not mine a thousand times. <laughs> Dude. People put the same picture of their dogs up a thousand times and people get like a thousand likes for them. All right. I'm just warning you that if I get an Instagram, that's pretty much all it's going to be. It's going to be glorious. Just fair warning. Either way, it's going to be glorious either way. (laughs) But again, hit us on Facebook as well. Facebook.com slash down nerdy. And as always, preg safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.